All right, let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, we are so grateful, God, that you are in control. Oh, Lord, that the world is not spinning awry in chaos, but in fact, you are bringing it to an expected end. And we thank you, Lord, that you have provided us a way to be reconciled to you through the blood of Jesus and his cross. Dear God, we thank you and we praise you. And Lord, we do take this cup of salvation and we drink it in full today and we rejoice in all that you have done for us. I pray, O God, that you would open our eyes to see even more clearly this day as we look into your holy word. Help us to see clearly, God, all of the beauty of what Christ has done for us. And Lord, I pray that we would treasure it. And that, Lord, beyond this, it would be a motivator to cause us to live holy lives. Lives filled with your love and your kindness, God. Uh, lives that are pure before you, God. And Father, I, I just uh, uh, want to ask that you would strengthen and encourage our faith through the study of the cross. That, Lord, we would understand the certainty of our salvation. And that, Lord, that your grace is so amazing. It's greater than all of our sin. Open our eyes and help us to see. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Okay. With that, just uh, want to just uh, give you... A little bit of review, just a brief review. Can y'all hear me? Can y'all hear me? Yeah. You can. And uh, we've been talking about the atonement. Um, we have finished our uh, lesson series on the person of Christ and now talking about the work of Christ. And therefore, we've been talking about what has happened at the cross and how the cross is the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. And so now we're, we've been uh, looking very specifically about the whole scope of Christ's saving work, which we call the atonement. And we've been using the atonement in this sense. We've been using it as a term to describe the whole scope of Christ's saving work, what all it encompasses, what is its character, what is its nature. Of course, we're hopefully going to be talking about that today. But uh, looking at all of the different things that the Bible has to say about the cross and what happened there and, and uh, so on and so forth. Um, in, in so doing, we uh, began last week talking about um, the definition of the atonement and, and defining it and bringing some meaning to it. And we talked about these words that are used in the Bible, Kippur, which is the noun for atonement in the Old Testament Hebrew, the word kafar, which is the Hebrew verb, if you will, to atone or to cover or to appease. And then we talked about the Greek word, which uh, has a little bit different meaning, which is the word hilasterion, which actually talks not only about the, the sacrificial atoning work itself, but also of the actual victim itself. So that the word, uh, the, the word that's used in the Greek that's translated as propitiation in your NASB, is actually a word that means the very sacrifice itself and all that it has accomplished or all that it has done. So 
for instance, in, in John, it would say that Jesus is himself the propitiation for our sins. He is the sacrifice. He is the one that's on the, on the altar. He is the lamb that's dying as a substitute. And so the Greek word takes on this more fuller sense of the actual sacrifice itself because of the way it's actually used in the text of the New Testament. Well, so then we talked about these biblical words that describe the atonement. And we talked about the words substitutionary and vicarious and propitiatory and expiatory. And then we talked about the sacrifice and reconciliation and justification and redemption. And that all of these terms are salvific terms, talking about salvation. Or they describe different elements of what happens in salvation, or if you will, different elements of what happens in the atonement. Okay? So now that we've kind of brought some definition to that stuff, we kind of went through and looked at some scriptures in last week's lesson talking about uh, the, the um, um, different ways that the Bible speaks about the atonement. And, of course, we're looking really primarily at the New Testament because it really brings, uh, you know, definition and explanation to what the atonement is and what it means. And, 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 and when the gospel was unveiled through the cross and through the teaching of the apostles, then we began to really have a full meaning and a full understanding of what the atonement is or why Jesus died on the cross. And so... Uh, through last week, we were looking at various different passages in the New Testament that use these different words, biblical words, to describe the character and the nature of the atonement. Then we went on and we started talking about the necessity of the atonement. We, um, we were asking the question, why did Jesus die on the cross? And uh, if you will, we began talking about the need the need for atonement, the need that mankind has for atonement because of sin. And uh, if you will, we're, we're, we have the subheading on this uh, section of a lesson called the necessity of the atonement. <clears throat> so we're, we have been talking about why did Jesus have to die on the cross? And I was telling you that this is a really important thing when it comes to telling people the gospel. This is a really important thing when it comes to witnessing to your family and to your loved ones and to your uh, friends and neighbors and co-workers and so on. Because, if you will, this is the central reason or the central issue that is at stake in the salvation of men. When we ask the question, why did Jesus die on the cross, we get to the fundamental issue in a big hurry. Are you with me? In other words, the cross is the only means of salvation... And if somebody's going to be saved, they're going to have to respond to the, to the cross, which is the message of the gospel. And so, if you will, we can get right to brass tacks in a big hurry by talking to people in this sense. Why is Jesus on the cross? Let's talk about that. Let's understand it. Let's learn how to communicate it. And, and I, I, uh, whether you realize it or not, if you're learning the things that we're going over now... You're learning how to be an effective gospel minister because you're learning what the cross means. And you're learning how, to, how the Bible uses different words to describe what happened there. And what are the biblical terms? How is it truly defined in the Word of God? 
And so uh, as we learn these things, it's very important to our ability to, to uh, minister the gospel to people and to tell people how to be saved. The fundamental issue is it's a sin problem. Right? I mean, somebody can think Jesus is really neat. And they can think that he is a historical figure and, and all kinds of neat things without being saved. Because the, the, the gospel is a message about Jesus who was the sacrificial lamb that died for sin. And he is embraced by faith. And his message of what he has done is embraced by faith. And in order to do that, you have to understand what it means. You make a cognitive choice when you choose to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You make a, a choice that your mind has to think about and embrace certain concepts and ideas. It's not just some magical thing that happens. Okay? God's given us minds. He's given us understanding. And he's given us his holy word to define these things for us so that we can understand what happened and embrace it. Well, if you will, when we began talking about the necessity of the atonement, we said that first, the, the great need for the atonement is because man is a sinner. And God has been alienated from man because of his sins. And so then there is a need to cover over man's sins. There's a need to atone. And we looked at various scriptures there on page 41 of your lesson handout. And we went on saying that the whole reason, if you will, um, that sin exists is because of the law. We had a bit of a lengthy discussion about the law. And, uh, you know, the Bible is so rich with symbolism. I wanted to just kind of give you a little picture here in bringing some review to what we said last week. That is that, you know, it's the very law of God that has condemned us as sinners. Because it's the law that we violated. And in New Testament language, for instance, in the passage in Colossians 2... It says that the law stood opposed to us. Okay? And in that sense, it stood against us. It condemned us. And, and Paul says, well, how can that which is holy and good, Romans 7, that we looked at last week, Romans 7, 12 through 13, how can that which is good become the cause of death for me? And here's the reason why. Because we've rejected it. And we've broken it. And we violated it. And it has become the standard by which we are judged. So that now the whole world is held accountable before God. Romans three nineteen and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and the whole world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's because of the law that we understand how we've sinned against God. And the law has brought great insight to us. And in Romans uh, 7 and verse 13, it says that uh, through the commandment, that is the law, that sin might become utterly sinful. <laughs> in other words, it's just an exposure of what we've actually done to violate God's character and his nature. And through the commandment, the law comes and it condemns us. Paul says, the law, the commandment came and I died, he says. And so, if you will, when you look at this little picture of 
the uh, tabernacle. I've drawn this little drawing on them, on the board. You remember the tabernacle was what God set up through Moses um, after they were delivered from, from Egypt and they're out in the desert and God uh, gives them, if you will, a set of religious practices by which they can meet with God. And so this tabernacle is called the tent of what? The tent of meeting. And the tent of meeting is where the people actually meet with God and commune with God. And if you're familiar, you've got the altar. You've got the altar and you've got the laver and you've got the blood and the water. And then you got here in the holy place, you've got the lampstand, right? And you've got the blood and the water and the oil. Okay? And there's all this rich symbolism in this tabernacle, right? I just wanted to point, point out something to you in understanding this thing about the law and about the atonement, okay? Well, you come into the tent of meeting, into this place here, which is called the holy place, right? And in the holy place, there's several pieces of furniture and so on. And then there's this veil that separates the holy place from what? The Holy of Holies are the most holy place. And in the most holy place, well, that was the place where the presence of God dwelt. Right? And the presence of God dwelt where? Right here between the cherubim on the mercy seat. Are you with me? Okay, well, you remember that I was telling you that this actual word that's used to describe this mercy seat is actually in some English translations, translated this, the atonement cover. I think it's really apt. Think about then, and therefore, where the atonement cover is at. It's on the Ark of the Testimony. The Ark of the Testimony is the Ark, right, where the testimony is kept. What's the testimony? The, the Ten Commandments, the tablets that, that Moses, that God inscribed with his, his own finger. And they put them in the Ark of the Testimony, and the mercy seat is the what? Atonement cover that covers over what? The demands of God's holy law so that he can dwell in the midst of his people. You see that? And I'm just pointing out that there's this rich symbolism of atonement and the law and sin that is in this place where God meets with man. Are you with me? And all that stuff's not just there as some big long list of historical things that these people did in the desert. But let me tell you, they were all divinely ordained and every little single piece of this thing points to the reality which is Christ who is, if you will, the fulfillment of the Levitical priesthood. Right? He's our great high priest. And of course there's so much to that. But uh, just wanting to show you how, if you will, even way back there in the tabernacle, God has this picture of how atonement is to cover over the demands of the law. Because it's through the law that we become conscious of sin. It's through the law that we were condemned to die. And it is the demands of the holy law of God which are met in the atonement of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. 
And if you will, this yeah, you can. This whole sacrificial system is there to point to the greater sacrifice of Christ. Yes, sir. Would it be accurate to say that the the Ark of the Covenant is a symbol and shadow and type of Jesus Christ? Uh, I would say that the Ark of the Covenant plays a major, this is what I would say, just off the cuff, uh, that it plays a major role in pointing to all that is meant in Christ. But it, it itself, I, I don't know. I guess I'd have to maybe understand where someone was coming from on that. Because um, there's several things in the Ark of the Covenant, right? It's not just the Ark, right? You have the Ark. You have the tablets. What else is in there? Aaron's rod that budded, right? And, I'm sorry? Jar of manna is in there. And then on top of this, you've got the atonement cover. And the atonement cover has this unique feature of these cherubim, right? And so if you will, I think there's so much symbolism just in the ark itself that it really points to uh, more than just the person of Christ itself. It points to the Trinity, I guess. Uh-huh. I suppose one could find... Uh, a very long list of, of biblical symbolism that that finds its reality right in the new covenant in Christ, absolutely, uh, and not just that, right? But every piece of it all, the whole, the, every piece of the whole system um, has a, a reality, a future fulfillment um, in the new covenant or in Christ Himself. Amen. Amen. So, um, okay, so. Uh, without going into a lot of depth there, I know that would be a very interesting study, I'm sure. Um, I want to move on and, be, and, and finish talking to you about the necessity of the atonement. And last week we left off uh, by saying that because the law had come and brought, made us conscious of sin, that the law had made sin utterly sinful to God and to us. And uh, if you will, all of that was because God sent the law to become a tutor to lead us to Christ. That the law is a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. How does it do that? It shows us our utter sinfulness and inability to save ourselves. And it leaves us in a totally hopeless and desperate state because the law in and of itself cannot save us. It's the law itself that has condemned us. So... So what it does is it causes us to look outside of the law to find Christ. Amen? Amen. And um, um, what the law couldn't do, Paul says in Romans 8, God did, God did in Jesus Christ sending him to die on the cross. Right? And there is therefore now no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. Right? Okay. And so then, um, therefore, it uh, is absolutely necessary that mankind have a way to become justified before God. This now is why the atonement is necessary for mankind. Without, man, without it, mankind is guilty <coughs> under God's law and hopelessly awaiting his fearful judgment, which his nature demands. God cannot be violated by sin without reacting to it according to his nature. Now think about the nature of God. And let's talk just for a minute about the holiness of God. Okay, God is infinitely pure. Therefore, um, sin is an infinitely intense offense.
to God because he's perfect. Sin is the antinomy of God. It's the opposite of God. And so God's nature, by virtue of what he is, reacts against sin by nature. He can't dwell where sin is. He has to react to it. Okay? And, of course, we could probably find a lot of different ways to explain that, but it's something very simple about the holiness of God. He's so utterly pure. He's so utterly perfect, unlike anything else in the world, that his nature demands a reaction against sin. Okay? And so we'll talk about that here. John Murray expressed this idea that God cannot be violated by sin without reacting to it according to his nature. This is what he said. Sin is the contradiction of God, and he must react against it with a holy indignation. This is to say that sin must meet with divine judgment. It is this inviolable sanctity of God's law, the immutable dictate of holiness, and the unflinching demand of justice that makes mandatory the conclusion that salvation from sin without expiation and propitiation is inconceivable. It is this principle that explains the sacrifice of the Lord of glory, the agony of Gethsemane, and the abandonment of the accursed tree. It is this principle that undergirds the great truth that God is just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. For in the work of Christ, the dictates of holiness and the demands of justice have been fully vindicated. God sent him forth to be a propitiation to declare his righteousness. These ideas illustrate another aspect of the necessity of the atonement. In other words, what we're saying is, because God is holy, and because God has to respond to sin, there has to be a subject for his vengeance. There has to be a subject for his justice. It has to be meted out somehow, some way. So, as I keep saying, either you're going to die for your sins, or Christ is going to die for your sins. But somebody's going to die. Amen? And so the point is, is that this is what happens in propitiation. This is what happens in the atonement. The divine demands of justice because of God's holy perfection and purity are met in a substitute, in a sacrifice, vicariously. Someone has to die in our place. Someone has to go die for us or we will die. Okay? And thus the whole sacrificial system. This is the means that God has ordained to express all of these things. Well, so there is a great need. There is a great necessity for the atonement because man is a sinner and because the law has condemned us with a perfect commandment and a perfect holy standard which we have violated at every point, and because God is holy by nature and he must react to it, there is this great need for atonement. Well, that's the first part of it. Second, if God decides to save mankind, there becomes a need for the means by which God will do it. Okay? So, if you will, just looking at the necessity of the atonement in these two very basic categories. First is, there's a necessity for the atonement because man is a sinner and the law has condemned him. And God is holy. There's a second need in this fact. 
How will God do it? If there's a need, then how will that need take form? And and if you will, that gets into a whole other discussion about, if you will, um, the means that God chose to atone by. Are you with me? And there's a lot of discussion about that. And I just want to kind of point out some of that to you so that you can come to know and understand more clearly the whole scope of this necessity for atonement. Because mankind cannot provide a way for himself to be justified before God, having violated God's law and become accountable to him, God must now act to save mankind, or they will perish. See, God has to act. God has to provide a means, because man can't do it. What means will man provide? And so, concerning this matter, there are two views about the necessity of the atonement. There are the view called the hypothetical necessity and the absolute necessity. And you think, well, you know, we're running off into all this theological nonsense. Let me tell you, this is an extremely important thing to understand about why God decided to save men the way he did. Was it just something he chose to do because that's the way he wanted to do it? Or did he... Was he obligated to do it that way because he's constrained by the dictates of his own nature? Are you with me? Okay, so I'm going to develop that and you'll, you'll see why it's so important. The idea of hypothetical necessity. This view was held by good men in the church such as Augustine, Aquinas, and even Calvin for many centuries. It is the idea that God has no necessity to save mankind by means of the vicarious substitution of Christ, but could have used other means to bring about the atonement. Okay, you see what they're saying? They're saying God didn't need to do it the way he did. He could have done it other ways. Okay? But God in his wisdom chose to use the means of the atonement of Christ to save mankind because it was the way in which the greatest number of advantages concur and in which grace is most marvelously exhibited. In other words, the cross was not absolutely necessary to be the means of salvation, but the means that God chose to use by his own sovereign decree. So what these guys are saying is, he did it, but he, if you will, it was just one of many choices he could have made in order to do it. So in other words, he didn't have to have his son, Jesus Christ, come and die on a cross. That's what's effectively being said. Or if you will, a conclusion that could be drawn from this idea or principle. Okay? Well, in contradiction to that idea of hypothetical necessity is the idea of absolute necessity. This view is the classic Protestant view held by such men as Turretin, Dabney, Burkhoff, Murray, and both A.A. and Charles Hodge. In this view, the atonement is seen as necessary because God had purpose by his free and sovereign grace to save mankind in his decree. And because of his perfect nature, vicarious sacrifice was the only means which it could be brought about. Murray states, while it was not inherently necessary for God to save, yet since salvation had been purposed, it was necessary to secure this salvation through a satisfaction that could be rendered only substitutionary sacrifice and blood-bought redemption. So the point here is, is what's being said here is that the cross was the only way 
that God could provide propitiation or atonement. Okay? And what they are saying is, it was absolutely necessary for God to do it the way he did it. It wasn't just some hypothetical chance or choice. Okay? So, concerning these two views of the necessity of the atonement, one might ask, why does it matter? The answer to this question is of paramount importance as to see the infinite value of the cross of our blessed Savior. So here's what we're saying. Why go into this nonsense about was it, was it just hypothetically necessary or was it absolutely necessary? And here's why. Because of the value of the cross. Do we think it's some small thing that God sacrificed his son on a cross at the hands of godless men through scourging, through shame, the shame of the cross? Do we think it's some small thing that that's what God did? Not to suggest that the, the authors of hypothetical necessity would consider it a small thing. But you see the conclusion we reach when we think God could have used many other means. Are you with me? Listen, it is something of infinite value. It is something we should treasure more than anything else in the world. What? The means by which God chose to save us. The precious blood of Christ should be to us that precious. It should be treasured. It's the only reason you're still breathing. It's the only way God can show common grace to a sinful world. Because of the blood of Christ on the cross. Are you with me? Okay. So then, why did Christ die? Was it absolutely necessary? Could some other person have achieved this great salvation? Could some other person have achieved this salvation? No, absolutely not. Of course not. Right? How come? Because Jesus is the God-man. There's only one (laughs) God-man. There's only one man with a perfect, holy righteousness, unblemished before God, who could be called the Lamb of God. Amen? There's only one of those. So no other man or woman could do it. Amen? Okay. Might we have been saved some other way, or was this just a hypothetical set of circumstances that God chose to use of which he had many choices? On these questions we shall look to the scripture. It is rather clear in the text of scripture that the atonement of Christ was in fact the only means by which salvation could be obtained. In Hebrews chapter 2, we see that in order for Christ to make propitiation or satisfaction for divine justice and also to be merciful to mankind, he had, the scripture says, to be made like his brethren in all things. In other words... Christ, the eternal Son of God, God, very God, had to be made like his brethren and what? Become a man. In order to do what? Make propitiation for sins. That's what Hebrews 2.17 says. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You see what the scripture is saying? The scripture is saying in order for there to be propitiation for the sins of the people, Jesus had to come in the flesh and take on a human nature. Right? 
Or we could say, that man that has to die to make propitiation has to be God, very God. Are you with me? Because both truths are the same in the incarnation. Right? Okay. And the scripture uses this little word, he had to be made. It had to happen like that. Okay? We'll talk more about that. More than this, because of the infinite perfections of God... Okay, now keep got to keep this in the background of your mind. The, the very character and nature of God is, is, is at stake in these discussions, okay? Because of the infinite perfections of God, we needed a high priest that was undefiled and without blemish so that he could die for the sins of others and not his own sins, okay? That's why no other man in history could do it because Jesus was the only one that didn't have to die for his own sins, Therefore, when he died, he could die in the place of somebody else because he wasn't having to die for himself. Right? Well, Hebrews seven twenty six. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Amen. You see what the Bible's saying? He didn't need like those other priests to die for his own sins. Why? Because he's holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. Listen, exalted above the heavens. That's the Jesus that we have that died on the cross. Amen. Nobody else like him. Yep. Amen? Amen? He was the only one like that. Now think about how that speaks to absolute necessity. Right? Okay? Also, we needed an undefiled high priest who could enter the tabernacle in heaven and sprinkle the mercy seat there in the presence of the holy God once for all. Now who's going to go to heaven for us? Is a sinner going to step foot in heaven? I don't think so. Are you with me? Hebrews 9.23, Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, talking about the sacrifices in the Levitical priesthood. Verse 23, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. You see what he's saying? He's saying this stuff here, this tabernacle thing, this was just the temporary thing. This wasn't the real and lasting tabernacle, which is that the very presence of God in heaven. Right? And Jesus had to go there and present his blood as a real atonement before God at God's tabernacle in heaven. You see that? That's what he's saying. Was a sinner going to accomplish this? No, of course not. The sacrifice of Christ was absolutely necessary because it is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins. Hebrews 10, 4-7 For it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast not taken pleasure. Then I said, in other words, he's quoting the scriptures as he's saying, God's not pleased with the blood of goats and bulls. 
That's what he's saying. But you prepared a body for me, he said. When I came into the world, you prepared a body for me. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the roll of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. What will? To offer himself as a sacrifice. To offer his body, his unblemished, undefiled, holy body as an offering for sin once for all. Amen? Okay. Because of God's inviolable holiness and perfection, in order to be accepted by him, a person must be holy and righteous. Because all mankind have sinned, they cannot therefore be accepted by God without a justification brought about by God himself. In other words, because everyone is a sinner, how are they going to atone for themselves? In what way would they atone? Are you with me? Because the just consequence for your sin is death. It's separation from God. You cannot provide your own means of atonement. It cannot happen. Otherwise, you become the subject of God's wrath. That's what the scripture calls us. It says we're, we're children of wrath. We're objects of wrath. He must be, that is, God must come and bring about this atonement. He must be the justifier. And this justification must be of such quality that it actually provides an infinitely perfect righteousness for the person being justified. You know, it's not just some simple thing where an animal can die in my place. God is infinitely perfect. He's infinitely holy. You understand? He's he's holy in a way that we can't even comprehend. That, that's why the penalty of death is eternal. You think, God, that's a severe penalty. Well, let me tell you, God is severely holy. Let me tell you how holy God is. That sinners who don't get propitiation burn in hell forever. Ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That's how holy God is. I know it's incomprehensible. I can't imagine it. I can't imagine the first part of it. Okay? But that's how holy God is. That's why the just penalty for sin is eternal separation from God. Because He's infinitely pure. He's infinitely holy. So the, the good and altogether righteous and just penalty for that is to be shut out from His presence forever. Okay, that speaks to us about why it's so severe. It's because God is so holy. He's infinitely holy. He's eternally holy. It's not like, you know, a million years and you've paid the fine, now you can come back. It doesn't work that way. That's not how offensive sin is. Sin is far more offensive than that. Are you with me? Okay. I know those are hard things to think about. It's, it's very, very severe to consider those things. But let me tell you something. It's a reality. It's a reality we need to understand. And those are hot fires we're snatching people from with the gospel. Those are hot fires you've been snatched from by the death of this lamb on the cross. Are you with me? Well... <clears throat> This can only be provided by a vicarious substitute, since mankind can in no way become this himself. This is why the redemption in Christ is absolutely necessary. 
Romans 3, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Okay, so listen. God displayed Jesus publicly. God is the cause of it. He sent the Son, right? And displayed him as what? As a propitiation, as an atoning victim in his blood. God sent Jesus as an atoning victim, a substitute, a vicarious substitute, a victim to die in your place. That's what the scripture is saying. Okay? Now listen to what he says. Romans 3. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's his point. Jesus came and died as a propitiation, an atoning victim, the very lamb, the very sacrifice himself, to display the righteousness of God. So that God could himself perform justice on our behalf. So that we could be received simply by faith. Are you with me? That's a profound reality. Hard to describe. It can only be described in the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And there's a living picture of it all. You want to know what it means? Marvel at, at the cross. You'll find what it means. Amen? Amen. Further, this atonement is absolutely necessary to be the supreme display of the love of God and the costly value of it. It is the greatest demonstration of the love of God. And this love could not have been displayed apart from the infinitely valuable price of the death of His perfect Son. Now here's where we talk about how valuable it is. Let me ask you, how valuable is the cross? Well, I know to us, as I've been saying, there should be nothing more important, right, than, than the very God himself who's hanging on the cross. Right? I mean, he's the reason there is a cross, so we can be reconciled to him. Right? But how valuable is the cross? Well, to us, there isn't anything more valuable it's the most valuable thing. You don't think so now? Wait till you face the great white throne. You with me? You're going to find out how valuable it is there. You're going to see with your eyes, which is what's so hard about faith, right? We walk by faith and not by sight, right? But how valuable is the cross to God? You ever thought about that? I don't know about you, but I love my son. I have one son. I have one son. He's my only son. Let me tell you, I love my son. Would I be willing to give the life of my son for anything? Let me tell you, how valuable is the cross to God? Let me tell you, my son, he's a sinner. He came into this world rebelling and sinning. And causing me problems. <laughs> right? Listen, God's Son is infinitely perfect and holy. He's infinitely pure and righteous altogether. He's infinitely loving in every motive of his heart. How valuable 
is the cross to God. And I'm going to tell you right now how valuable the cross is to God. Is there anything more valuable than the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity himself, being sacrificed on that cross? Could God have paid a higher price than the price he paid? then I say it was absolutely necessary. It was absolutely necessary. In this is love, 1 John 4.10, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning victim for our sins. He's the one that died in our place. If there could have been any other way than the sacrifice of Jesus to save sinners, surely God would have answered Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. You with me? If it was just a hypothetical thing, if there could have been another way, don't you think God would have answered Jesus' prayer when he prays? Listen, and he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for thee. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what thou wilt. I ask you, is God not disposed to answer that prayer of his son if it is possible to answer that prayer? You with me? Conclusion? Absolute necessity. Of all the reasons why it is absolutely necessary that Christ's cross be the only means of propitiation for sinners, it is because God, in his infinite wisdom and omniscience, has set forth in the divine decree that it should be so. Okay? Now here's the line of reasoning here. Listen. Atonement did happen by means of the cross with Jesus dying there. Amen? You with me? That's how it did happen. Therefore, it is God's what? Sovereign will. It's God's sovereign will that atonement happened by those means. Are you with me? Which therefore leads us to the conclusion that that's what God did what? Decreed from the foundation of the earth. How do we know? Because everything that happens in the course of history happens by the sovereign decree of God according to his sovereign will. Are you with me? Nothing happens apart from the sovereign will of God. Okay? So, the point is, is that if the means of atonement is in fact the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, it has happened that way because of the sovereign will of God which he decreed from all eternity. Therefore, that in and of itself makes it absolutely necessary. Are you with me? Because God's universe isn't a random universe that's, that's ordered by chaos. Is there even such a thing as ordering by chaos? You understand what I'm saying? God's world is orderly. It's happening according to a purpose. It's happening according to a plan. Everything is leading to an expected end. There's a reason and a purpose why the intelligent and all-wise God has done what he's done. Are you with me? 
And all of those things are intercontingent upon each other to bring to pass the expected end which God has decreed from all eternity. Therefore, that makes it absolutely necessary. If God is going to mete out justice for a whole world of sinful mankind and chooses a way to do it, that way is going to be consistent with his nature and according to what it requires. And if that price is the infinite life of his own son, then, then, then that, by, by, by will of the fact that God has decreed it should happen that way, makes it absolutely necessary. I mean, I ask this question all the time. You know, I, I, frequently when I'm suffering and I pray and I say, God, is this necessary? I'm just like Jesus in Gethsemane. God, is it necessary for me to go through this? God, I'm hurting. I'm struggling. This is killing me, God. You ever been there? Yeah? Isn't that what we're asking God? Is, it, is this absolutely necessary? And where, where do we wind up at the end of that prayer? I don't know about you, but here's where I wind up. God, not my will, but your will. And usually until I come to that place, he's not about to hear my prayer. <laughs> Are you with me? He wants to be acknowledged as God. He will be acknowledged as God. <laughs> Either now uh, uh, willingly or then by force. For every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Are you with me? <laughs> so... The, the point is just that, family, listen, if this is what God has decreed should come to pass, then that is, in fact, what is absolutely necessary. It deals with the whole nature of reality, okay? Listen, is it absolutely necessary that the world happen like this? Of course it is. <laughs> I'm not sure if that makes any sense or if you even want to think that deep with me, okay? But I'm telling you. The fact that God has made this world like this and all these things have happened by his providence just like they have makes them by virtue of that absolutely necessary for him to reach his expected end. Are you with me? And let me tell you, when it's all said and done and we look back on it, we will spend eternity marveling at it all. We will not even be able to comprehend the manifold wisdom of God when we see it in all of its glory. Are you with me? Indescribable is a good term. Ineffable. No words. That's what ineffable means. Amen? You want words? Look at Jesus. You want words to define the cross? Look at the life of Jesus. He's the living word. He's the communication of God to us. Because no English words are going to describe it, I promise. Amen? They're words taught us by the Spirit. Spiritual words expressed in spiritual thoughts. You with me? We only get that by the Spirit of God. For the natural man does not accept the things of God. Indeed, he cannot. Amen? Okay. So then, in other words, God has decreed that salvation be wrought by this means, and this makes it absolutely necessary because God does not deliberate in moments of time in his consideration of decrees, but rather in perfect omniscience decrees that which is perfect in one simple act. Okay? Here's what I'm trying to tell you. Think about this. Okay? God's up in heaven in, in, in all eternity. Okay? Let's just say way back then. Okay? A million years. A trillion years. A quadrillion years. I mean, think of whatever time you want to think of. God's outside of time. Okay? 
But before he created the world, I want to ask you a question. Was God sitting on a big rock up in heaven, bending over with his elbow on his knee, scratching his beard? Hmm. wonder how I'm going to do that. Are you with me? Do you remember when we were going through decrees and I was telling you God doesn't think? God doesn't think? God has no necessity to think. Why? Because thinking implies two things. It implies time and it implies deliberation of thoughts. Are you with me? So in order to think, right, what do I do? I sit here, hmm, should I get the red car or should I get the green car? Well, you know, my wife likes the red car. I like the green car. Better get the red car. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Right? So I'm thinking through my choice, and I'm thinking about the choices I have, and I'm thinking about all the consequences of the choices I make and how things are going to play out and what's going to be, what's the best result, right? Okay? Right? This is the idea of middle knowledge, right? God's sitting down. Scratching his head and figuring out, okay, which way's gonna ha- which which way's gonna bring about the most benefits? Why well, I'm gonna choose that way, right? Are you with me? No, no, that is not what decree is. Okay, God doesn't think. His knowledge is perfect. He can't deliberate. God can't can't sit and think and wonder what are gonna be the consequences of his actions. Okay, how do I how do we know that? Because the entire record of history is as one simple thought in the mind of God. In one thought, he knows all of history. Why? Because when he thought it, he decreed it. When God said, I'm going to create, it all happened in one simple thought. He said, I'm going to create, and this is how it will happen. And his thought the very first time was infinitely perfect. Listen, if God's first thought wasn't perfect... And he had to deliberate if he had a better choice. He's not God. I'm talking to you about omniscience. Are you with me? Yeah. Are you following me? God doesn't think like this. His brain, does, he, 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 he doesn't have a brain like me. <laughs> Are you with me? Listen, God can't deliberate because he's perfect in knowledge. He can't think about which way is going to be better than the other way. His, his thoughts are not imperfect like that. His thoughts are absolutely, consistently, totally, infinitely perfect. And it all happens in one simple act. When, when, God, when God has knowledge, it happens all simultaneously. Are you with me? In other words, he cannot learn. So if he can't learn, he can't deliberate. Because if he's going to deliberate in his mind which way is better, he's going to have to learn which way is better by cognitive process. You understand? He doesn't do that. Why? Because his knowledge is perfect and eternal in one simple act. Are you with me? Family, this is the whole, this thing of omniscience is how you understand decrees. This is how we know that God decreed everything that should happen because he knows the whole record of human history. Okay? If he knows the whole record of human history, what is he going to do? What, what is he going to do? Sit there and scratch his beard until he figures out which is the best way and then that's the way he's going to choose to do? And then, oh, 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 by the way, 
we get 100,000 years into this thing and, oh, I found a flaw. I, shucks, I shouldn't have done it that way. Are you with me? <laughs> That's not God, family. He's not a man. He's not like us. God is infinitely perfect in his knowledge. Okay? I know that's a really deep conversation that goes way on beyond where we're going. But, but the point is just that I want to tell you something. Now think about the cross. Now think about the cross. Think about atonement. Think about what Christ has done. Think about what it accomplished. Not only that, think about what it accomplished in this sense. It did exactly what God intended it to do. Are you with me? Let me tell you, that is cause for rejoicing. Because I'm included. And anybody who believes is included. Are you with me? This is why Paul says we implore men, knowing the terror of the Lord, we implore men, be reconciled to God. Amen? Are you with me? Because anybody who believes is included. Listen, when God planned the cross, he planned exactly what he wanted to do to satisfy his own justice. And that's why the scripture says, God displayed Jesus publicly as a propitiation in his blood to demonstrate his own righteousness. Are you with me? It's all of God. Every bit of it is of God. Amen? Okay. So then, that's why First Peter says, He, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. What's he saying? He's saying way back here in eternity, in God's one simple act of knowledge, right? He foreknew Jesus, the Christ, on the cross. The exact way it happened. That's why he made a world. That's why I was telling you in the beginning. That's why God made the world. God made the world so Jesus could die on a cross. God made the world so Jesus could die on a cross and you could believe in him and be saved. Now, if that doesn't make your salvation sure, I don't know what will. What more do you want God to do? Are you with me? Oh. Yeah, absolutely. All of these things about the atonement is what absolutely and entirely sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. That's what we're saying. The atonement is absolutely necessary, right? And that's why it's the only means for someone to be saved. Right? I mean, the Buddhists can go hide in caves all they want. That's not going to produce a Lamb of God to die for their sins. Are you with me? Okay, <clears throat> praise God for the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient to meet all the demands of God's holiness and the cross does provide for us a righteousness before God. How do we know that? Because God decreed it. God decreed it should happen like it did. Therefore, it's sufficient. He knows what it takes to meet his own demands. Would you agree? And so if he's going to send a priest to mediate and intercede for us, don't you think that priest is going to do it just the right way? He is. 
And the means are going to be sufficient. They're, and let me tell you what they're sufficient for. They're sufficient for our joy. They're sufficient to cleanse our guilty conscience so deeply that we can now rejoice in what Christ has done, that we've been reconciled to God. And in spite of us, we can appreciate grace with thanksgiving and profound uh, 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 admiration for what God has done in displaying a love like this. Amen? Amazing. Hebrews 9.13 For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling on those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In other words, what more could he have done? How much more will Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, dying in our place, accomplish for us what it was intended to accomplish. The demands of divine justice have been satisfied by Christ and sin has been put away. You ever wonder if God can forgive you? I know we talked about this a few weeks ago. You ever wonder if God can forgive the guilt of your sins? Ever wonder that? Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he, that is Jesus, has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Let me tell you, God is satisfied with the death of Jesus. He's satisfied. You're free. Let it ring in the in the annals of your heart and in the corridors of your mind. You are free from the guilt of sin if you are in Christ Jesus. Are you with me? You're free. You're reconciled to God. There's not one more drop of divine wrath left to drink in the cup. It's gone. Glorious truth. Okay, let us therefore see and affirm that it was absolutely necessary for Jesus to die in our place and for us and this to be a propitiation for our sins. In light of this, let us consider the infinite value of his death and may his blood be to us what it truly is, precious blood. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would impress this upon our hearts, God. I pray that these truths that we have discussed this morning would be impressed upon our hearts. Lord, that they would remain there, that they would be precious to us, God. Cause us to treasure and value what you have done for us in Christ and help us to understand it, God. And Lord, I pray for those who may be struggling with the idea of divine uh, uh, omniscience and knowledge and the idea of decree. God, Shine a light from heaven and cause them to see and understand your infinite perfection, God. I pray that they would grasp, Lord, just how well you know what you know and how comprehensive and complete it is. God, teach us. Teach us of yourself. Lord, we're hungry. We hunger for the living God. Our heart pants to know you, God. And I pray that you would take us to that place in heaven and help us to see you, God. 
as you are in truth. We thank you for your great love for us. We honor you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.